0: Hi, and welcome to another episode of What I Wish i Known, the Google Partners podcast. I'm your host, Alex Langshire. Well, as we get ready to record today, we're on the cusp of the holiday season. For retailers, this is clearly the busiest time of the year, and the race is on to capture whatever they can of the consumer wallet. As a digital strategist, what interests me is to see both the seasonal campaigns and the campaign strategies that marketers are launching to generate attention and interest as well as the actual shopping stats that will be tallied after the season is said and done. So as my early holiday treat to our listeners, I thought I'd find a guest who can speak to both the marketing and online shopping aspects of seasonal campaigns. That person is Hannah Baza, head of marketing at Shopify Plus, the uber popular shopping platform that has democratized online storefronts across the globe. Hannah is passionate about marketing, marketing strategy, tech, and helping companies grow. She's a sought-after speaker at conferences around the world on the subjects of tech, tech startups, and marketing. From her vantage point at Shopify Plus, she's uniquely positioned to share what she's learned about what online marketing works, what doesn't, and why. Welcome to the Google Partners Podcast, Hannah.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: It's great to have you here. Hannah, maybe you could start with giving our, our listeners your backstory. I mean, what got you to, to Shopify Plus? What got you to here?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I have been involved in sort of startups and technology for a number of years now. And really, uh, it was kind of one of those things where I started off more on the B2C side. Eventually, we ended up doing some consulting more on the marketing and growth side for a B2B company, uh, specifically B2B SaaS. Kind of got the bug a little bit because uh, B2B is a bit different <laughs> for those of you that might be familiar with it. Yeah. And from there, I kind of moved into that space. I joined another technology company in Toronto called Uberflip, was there for a number of years. Started to get antsy and kind of started looking for the next challenge. Wanted to do something really big and explosive, and accidentally ended up at Shopify, uh, and specifically at Shopify Plus. Which, for those of you that might be familiar with Shopify, you probably know that you know Shopify started a number of years ago by focusing on the small business segment of the market and on entrepreneurs. And Shopify grew pretty big, pretty fast by focusing on that segment of the market. But as Shopify grew really big, really fast, a lot of those small businesses that were using the Shopify platform also started growing really big, really fast. And then kind of one of two Mm. things would happen. Either they would... Graduate to an enterprise e commerce platform, quote unquote. So they would churn off of Shopify or they would figure out a way to make it work on Shopify. And that was really probably about three years ago, I would say, the beginning of Shopify Plus, which is kind of the offering that we have for that mid market to enterprise. And initially, we just really wanted to help keep those um, big businesses on Shopify longer and figure out what the right service and product and offering was for them. And I joined about two years ago to run. And marketing uh, specifically for the Plus audience segment.
0: I want to come back to something you said in that backstory, which was accidentally got to Shopify. <laughs> what do you mean by accidentally got there?
1: Yeah, I mean, I didn't really know what I wanted to do, frankly. And I was uh, talking to a lot of different companies uh, in the Toronto area. I'm based in Toronto, but also talking to a lot of companies out of San Francisco. And I was thinking, "Mm, I want to stay in tech. I don't know if I want to go to an early stage startup or something that's a little bit later stage. And I kind of got to a place where I thought I really would have to move. And I ended up having coffee with Craig Miller, who at the time was the CMO of Shopify. He's actually now the chief product officer at Shopify. And when we had coffee, I I basically said, hey, I need life advice. (laughs) Um, And I I ran him through sort of what I was thinking and all of my options. And at the end of the conversation, he says, hey, you know, you should explore Shopify before you move out of Toronto. And, you know, at that point, I wasn't really familiar with Plus. And my response was, you know, I really want to stay up market. Um, You know, I knew Shopify was growing really well, focusing on sort of the smaller businesses. And he says, hang on a second, we have this thing called Plus. And... And it's actually really gaining traction. And I think it might be exactly what you're looking for. So very much accidental sort of stumbled upon it kind of thing.
0: Yeah, you know, it's interesting because what you're really saying is that it was the networking and and reaching out and asking people. We had somebody earlier on, Michelle Greenwald, talking about innovation. And she was just adamant about the need for people to put themselves out there and contact people and say, hey, I got this idea. I'm thinking about this or what have you. Because who knows what comes out of it? It's those unintended network effects that that we all want to maximize. Absolutely. Before we begin with what you wish you'd known, Hannah, maybe you could just help our listeners out by sharing what your definition is of a seasonal campaign.
1: Yeah, that's actually an interesting question. So I think it is partly driven by your business, right? And also, I think needs to be informed by how much seasonality can affect your business. So I know, you know, when we think about it at Shopify, for us, because you know we are software and you know it's SaaS and we're selling software, we might think of it a little bit differently than um, our customers who are retailers uh, might be thinking about it, right? But there's also a lot of consistencies there. So you know, we know when there is a season that's coming up that's really big for our retailers, there's likely a lot we can do to help them. And a lot of that sort of gets executed via campaign. So, you know, for us, obviously the holiday season is a big one, um, particularly because our customers are often sort of retailers, e-commerce, and, you know, the holiday season is always huge for that. But even as you look over the course of the year, there are other campaigns that can be done around what maybe not always be considered seasonal, but it really can be. So for example, back to school, it's another one that's actually really interesting for, again, retailers, e-commerce, you know, anyone that's sort of selling direct to consumer in certain industries. So that's one that we really consider a seasonal campaign that actually is important for our merchants. And as a result, it often opens up opportunities for us to do things like, you know, running a campaign around particular feature or product adoption. So I think, you know, the definition of seasonal can be much broader than the actual seasons, if you know what I mean.
0: Right, right, right. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's like stage and life stage events and, and things which I, I think have a wider common appeal.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, and again, that really does need to be mapped to your business and you know your industry and your customer and how they view it.
0: Correct. Fantastic. So, well, Hannah, as you know, the premise of the podcast is what you wish you'd known. So my question to you is this, what would be the top strategically tactical actions that you tell your younger Hannah self about becoming better digital marketer, and and effective campaigns.
1: Yeah, this is a, (laughs) this is an interesting question. So I have (laughs) a few here for you. So we'll just start at the top and work our way down, I suppose. So, I mean, the first one I think is a, is a really simple one. And I think most people will roll their eyes and they'll say, yeah, yeah, we know, we know. But the problem is it's not often taken to heart and actually really executed upon. And the first one is that words matter and they matter a lot. And I don't just mean that from the perspective of your, you know, your team or your customer. Uh, I mean that fundamentally in terms of being very deliberate and how you talk about your company and your product. And, you know, one of the areas that I think is often overlooked, but foundational to a really solid marketing or growth strategy is positioning. You know, there's a lot of really smart people that talk about positioning. And, you know, unfortunately, sometimes it gets a little... A little bit lost in the jargon. So, you know, when I think about positioning, it's really about how do people actually think about your product and your company? And more importantly, is how do they actually describe it? And what words do they use in order to uh, really articulate what it is that you do? And this was really, I think, one of those things that again, everyone's probably nodding along and saying, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, this is really important," um, but nobody does it well. So here's here's a really great example, of a really obvious one. Uh, before I joined Shopify, I was at a company that did content marketing software, mm-hmm. and it was basically a content marketing platform. And when I initially joined, it was very focused on sort of small business. It was early stage startup, hadn't quite reached product market fit. So you know, we thought the small business thing would be the thing. Turns out we were totally wrong. We shifted way up market. It was actually super, super enterprisey, And obviously when you shift from selling to small business versus selling to enterprise, you have to revisit how you position your product, how you talk about your product, how you message your product, all of the stuff that's sort of associated with that. And as we were going through that process, I remember one of the founders saying, Hey, I've got it. We are a lightweight CMS for content marketers. So this is, this is how he was thinking about positioning the product. So let's unpack that for a second. I just told you we shifted to yeah. selling to enterprises, right? Yeah. So if we shift and start selling to enterprise, that statement of we are a lightweight CMS for content marketers actually falls apart. And here's why. Start with the word lightweight. What do you think enterprise buyers hear when they hear the term lightweight?
0: Probably not for me, not robust enough.
1: Yeah, exactly. So they don't hear user-friendly and fun, no, which no, is no, the intention. Just start, uh,
0: turned off right there. No.
1: Yeah. yeah, they hear not robust enough for my big, bad, enterprising needs. So that's problem number one. Problem number two, we are a lightweight CMS for content marketers. Now, technically that was correct, but what do you, what do people think of when they hear CMS?
0: Uh, well, they probably think it's deprecated features, not really robust in, in what I can do and how I can leverage it.
1: Or they think WordPress, right? Um, oh, yes, and yes, they'll yes, say, yes, yeah, yeah. Course. And it's, you know, Im- imagine the sales team on the phone being like, hey, we're a lightweight CMS for content marketers. A uh, CMS, sorry, we use WordPress, click. Yeah. And then you have to go to them and be like, no, no, wait, we're not like WordPress. We integrate with WordPress. It's different. Come back, right? Mm-hmm. So it, it's, it's the verbiage you use and how you position the product is, so incredibly important. And I think the importance of that is often under undervalued and underrated, particularly when you're first starting to build out um, a marketing strategy. So I, I would say that that is such an important lesson that even, you know, the best marketers need to be reminded of on a regular basis.
0: You know, I had April Dunford uh, who talked about positioning on the podcast a few episodes ago, right? Fantastic. And she shared a similar story about going into an organization and saying we sell a database and then unpacking all the features of the database, but running up against a wall of people said, well, I have a database. You know, I'm not really interested in shifting off that. And it took them kind of going back and understanding what it was that was different and unique and applicable to that audience's needs to come up with the idea, well, actually, we have a lot of analytics features which give you insight into how those databases are being used, which are unique and really help streamline all, the, all of your uh, back-end processes. And that was a thing that unlocked it. But they didn't get there on their own. So. Absolutely.
1: And here's what's interesting. April is actually a great friend of mine and probably one of the smartest people I know when it comes to positioning. And she actually has a really great definition of positioning. I don't know if you've ever heard it before. I actually, I quote her in a lot of my talks, which yeah. is, you know, positioning or rather marketing um, is about polishing a turd, whereas positioning is turning turds into fertilizer. Um, And then, you know, it's a little bit weird because you're talking about poop. But (laughs) at the same time, um, that is probably the clearest definition of positioning that I have ever, ever heard. Uh, And that came from April Dunford.
0: Fabulous, That's great. So from, from the perspective of our audience, many of whom are digital agencies and words matter and positioning, what would you say to them as they go to their clients that they could try and link these two points together?
1: Yeah. I mean, if you're coming at it from an agency standpoint, uh, agencies can actually be really helpful in offering an outside perspective on how to better articulate and position your product to the market. You know, if you're on an in-house team, it's really, really easy to sort of get in your own head about it (laughs) right, Um, mm -hmm. and lose that external perspective. So I would say like from an agency standpoint, I think what you'd want to put in front of an in-house team is really the thing that they are either too scared to acknowledge, right? Or just don't have that, you know, step back bird's eye view perspective on what it is that they're doing and how it actually relates to that broader market. Because agencies can be really, really powerful there, but only if they have all of like the context and understanding that's needed in order to do that.
0: Great. What's your next point?
1: So, The second real important thing to keep in mind, and this is one of the things that was definitely applicable as I moved into the new role at Plus, is how do you balance building for the long term while still making an impact short term? And this will definitely come into play whenever you're moving into, you know, build out a thing from scratch where there aren't already sort of systems and processes in place.
0: Um, So uh, would this be applicable even let's say we're looking at like an agency who's coming into a new client would be the similar situation or is it uniquely if you're on client side?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think this is applicable anywhere, right? Because Mm -hmm. I think that you will see the concept of low-hanging fruit comes up a lot, right? Um, Right. Whether Mm -hmm. you're agency, whether you're client side, there's this feeling that low-hanging fruit is a thing that people should be able to just act on quickly and you should be able to see an impact really quickly. The problem with low-hanging fruit is it often masks a foundational issue that actually needs to be addressed before Mm -hmm. you go trying to optimize a bunch of things that might look like low-hanging fruit. The other challenge with low-hanging fruit is often distraction, right? And kind of distracts you from building that foundation. And it also makes it really difficult to prioritize what it is that you really need to do. So, you know, rather than going in and trying to sort of pick off all of the low-hanging fruit that seem like really good opportunities to, you know, optimize something, to create something, to, you know, tackle, something that might look like it's it's high impact i preferred to really tackle things in terms of thinking about how do you build systems versus one-off solutions for things. So, you know, really great example, you know, we came in and started to do sort of marketing for Shopify Plus. We looked at a whole bunch of our properties on the website and, you know, on first glance, it looked like there was a whole bunch of potential low hanging fruit, quote unquote, when it came to conversion rate optimization, right? Mm -hmm. But the reality of it was that there were a lot of challenges that, actually prevented us from even being able to take advantage of some of those opportunities. And we really had to dig deep and start to look at the actual infrastructure and data and all of the things that are foundational to be able to do conversion rate optimization properly. So, you know, if we had spent our time focusing on how do we build, you know, one-off A-B tests versus tackling that foundation, you know, we would have kind of been shooting ourselves in the foot longer term. So that, you know, Balance between building for the long term while making an impact short term. It's a little bit of an art slash science, um, mm-hmm. but it's definitely something that I think is incredibly important to keep in mind.
0: So you get no argument from me there at all. Uh, one of the things so that's that's pretty common. and It'd be interesting to get the the client side perspective on this too. Is that. You come in as an agency and you're asked to do a lot quickly. So you're looking for those opportunities to have a, an impact. And, and the reality is that sometimes there are structural issues, as you've identified, that prevent us from doing that. How do you make those trade offs and make sure they're clear? Like what would what would if an agency came to you and said we have this issue? How would you how do you want to see that position back to you?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think at the end of the day, it's always a matrix of like impact to effort, right? Um, Mm -hmm. So it's never going to be a perfect, you know, always optimized for the long term, never tackle any of those short term things because sometimes... Building that short term thing or, or doing that short term thing, while it may be inefficient, if the impact of that is incredibly high and actually is worth the effort, then it might be actually a good idea to go ahead and go through with it. So, you know, what I definitely like to see um, an agency come back with is hey, like this is high effort. It's not the most efficient way to do it. We may need to build the system that's going to have more longevity in parallel, but it's also super high impact to the business, right? Right? It's going to drive revenue, it's going to drive conversion, it's going to drive you know whatever the whatever the metric is, and those are really the two dimensions by which I would think I would evaluate something. What is the impact to effort ratio?
0: If we go back to seasonal campaigns, which is uh one of the aspects that we want to explore on this podcast would you would you say that you know that's kind of a classic one where you'd come in and look at your entire content calendar year and understand what mm-hmm. what kind of events might be seasonal and and say look are we prepared to actually address any of these and is there one that's coming up right now that we need to start off with and that that might be quote unquote some low hanging fruit but
1: yeah i mean i think seasonal campaigns are actually a <laughs> really great example of when it's incredibly important to have that impact effort lens as you're looking at it, because not every seasonal campaign is necessarily going to be worth your time, right? Um, So being really strategic about where you focus your efforts, the challenge with seasonal campaigns is like, they're really easy to rally people around. Sometimes they present an opportunity to be really creative with something, gets teams excited, but they're not always necessarily going to have the payback that you want. And too often, seasonal campaigns become really reactive, right? Um, Teams don't plan ahead. Enough in advance, and they realize, hey there's you know this holiday thing coming up oh shoot, we haven't actually done anything for it, so we're going to spin up this campaign and it ends up being reactive and not intentional so again effort to impact everything should be looked at through that lens
0: Great uh, what would be your third point?
1: so third point is really around taking the time to uncover biases, and I think this is relevant to whether you're an in-house team, whether you're more on the B2B side working with sales versus, you know, on the B2C side and uncovering biases with your customers versus agency and trying to look for those biases in your client. Speaking back to sort of that positioning work that we talked about, um, sure. you know, that's, again, a have huge power there where they can come in with an unbiased perspective and really dig into the biases that you, you know, your internal teams have. And these exist everywhere within an organization. Uh, one really great example that I've seen with sales teams, and I've seen this with multiple sales teams across multiple companies, is this thing called lead source bias. Right. So TLDR, for those of you who may not be in B2B marketing, when marketing hands off a lead to sales, usually there's certain information that's passed along with that lead. For example, one of those pieces of information is the the lead source. So, did they come from AdWords or Facebook or some other channel? Now, what many sales teams do is they will actually look at the lead source and sometimes develop these biases away from or towards certain lead sources. So, for example, you know, I've seen this once where, you know, historically one sales rep was getting all of these AdWords leads and, you know, in their mind, AdWords leads were bad because they weren't actually converting. The problem is when one sales rep says that, then All of the sales reps eventually think that. It spreads like wildfire, right?
0: Absolutely, yeah. All the web form form leads are crap. They they don't work. Nobody answers the phone.
1: Exactly. So the problem with that, though, is particularly in that situation where the rhetoric was AdWords leads are bad. That sales team didn't understand that AdWords leads today were very different than AdWords leads a month ago, than two months ago, than six months ago, because the ads were always changing. The campaigns were changing. The lead quality was going up. So instead of paying attention to something like a lead score, they were actually really sort of biasing their behavior based on something that really didn't matter that much. So we ran an experiment with that particular sales team, and we actually relabeled AdWords to a different lead source that they really liked. And like magic, the conversion rate for AdWords actually rose and matched the conversion rate of the lead source that we had replaced.
0: That's fascinating.
1: So, I mean, yeah pretty fascinating, right? And really powerful in sort of changing or helping change that behavior. Um, now we did this in partnership with like the rest of sales leadership. They all were totally in on it, and the rest of the sales team actually um you know found it super interesting. but that actually led to what I think my next point is is context, right? So a big discussion after that happened was should we even tell them what lead source is at all, right? And that tends to be best practice is like a lot of you know marketing teams will just send all the information to sales. But the problem is, is that's actually not good context for them because whether they came in through AdWords or you know Facebook or LinkedIn or any other channel, that actually matters a lot less than the really relevant content they need in order to actually have a solid conversation. And sort of the next point is context is king. I think that's applicable to sales teams, to customers, to internal teams, but where it became really powerful in this particular example is, you know, instead of passing them something like lead source, we actually looked at, okay, what is the context they need to have a better conversation? So things like, Hey, they converted on a page that talked about multi-channel e-commerce for example, is way more relevant to a sales rep than lead source equals AdWords. So that really helped inform how the team structured that flow of information moving forward. Things like landing page uh, copy, things like search query, things like technology stack, you know, what, what are they using? Things like ad spend, how much are they spending on marketing? Those are the types of, you know, key pieces of context that actually help a team convert. And that's the same with any kind of marketing, right? I mean, we're talking about sales here, but um, really sort of the same concept applies across the board.
0: So violent agreement with you on this one, Hannah. I've seen this over and over again, where if it's just a number or a name or a phone, it just doesn't work. It doesn't work even to tell what the channel is. You've actually got to provide that deeper insight about not just even the page, but perhaps what the journey was to get to that page that led to that conversion. So totally agree with you on this. What are some of the tools, what are some of the approaches that you might suggest uh, people can use to try and, and surface this in the organization so that it actually sticks Right. So it's one thing to say, Hey, you should, but, but what are some of the tools yeah. and ways that people can kind of get the aha moment? I get it. Like that, that idea, that example that you gave of relabeling, pretty blunt, <laughs> right? Not everybody <laughs> has, not everybody has that luxury. So what might be some other strategies? Cause biases run deep and, it, you know, it's hard to move, shift people away from them.
1: Yeah, and and here's the thing is like facts don't change people's minds, right? right exactly um, right. Yeah, so like it, it is a bit of a, again, art and science, so Uncovering the biases, I think, is the first step is like really understanding where they exist and, and also why they exist. But you really have to change the narrative with your internal teams. And I mean, if these biases are are happening with your customer, let's say you're trying to, you know, reposition your product or reposition your company or pivot into a different space. Do you have to lead with Understanding how to persuade them uh, to actually see your point of view and just spouting a bunch of facts at them is, is not going to work. Right. So the first thing we tried before we relabeled the sort of, you know, lead source equals AdWords was actually just going to them and being like, look, look, when you reach out, they actually convert. Here are the numbers. That didn't change anything, right? <laughs> like yeah. it, it actually didn't, didn't help the case at all. Um, but when we were able to go with a story of, you know, hey, here's what happens and here's why you might have thought AdWords leads were bad. And by the way, you were right. And that's a key piece towards convincing people, right? Is like, you kind of have to tell them, hey, yeah, I totally understand why you would think that. It makes complete sense because, at the you know, given the information you had, but here's why things have changed, right? Um, and being able to tell that story is actually the key part of it. I mean, obviously, you know, the example I gave was more technical in nature. We had the infrastructure to be able to test certain things. But this can really be happening across different areas of the company and being able to to uncover and also help people move away from biases is actually, you know, is rooted, I think, in being able to tell a story and build a narrative and, um, you know, be persuasive.
0: Do you find that uh, there's some some number that you like to start with for looking at specific context-related issues related to conversion? So not I'm, I'm to get too tactical here, but I'm just trying to understand a little bit of how we deploy these systems. So how would an agency come to a client and say, this is what we'd like to do. We'd like to be able to uh, relate specific content on the page, on these landing pages back to the conversion. How how much does that scale? And, And what would you recommend people start at?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think fundamentally, it starts at like, do you know your audience? uh, And do you have, you know, message market fit? I think it's Brian Belfer has a great blog post where he goes beyond the concept of product market fit. He talks about message market fit, channel market fit, um, really understanding like beyond the product, you know, do all of these different foundational dimensions of marketing and growth actually fit in with your market? Right. So but in order to do that, you need to understand your audience and you need to really understand your market. And if you feel like you have a solid understanding of what that is, then is the message actually fitting in with that market? right? And it's usually fairly straightforward to determine whether or not it does if you really understand your market, their pain points, what they value, what they need, how they understand your product. Um, so I would say the first thing to look at would be message market fit. I mean, from a number standpoint, it really depends on your model, right? And, you know, there are different conversion points you might look at, whether you're B2B or B2C or, you know, what it is that you're doing. But I think ultimately, it's determining, you know, do you have message market fit? And then beyond that, you know, do you have channel market fit? So like, are you reaching them through the channels that, that they are on, that, they, that are appropriate for whatever message you're delivering, right? Um, right so right, those right, are the right. areas I'd probably start looking at.
0: And how would seasonality be an overlay on that?
1: Well, seasonality actually totally changes the context, right? So, when we look at, for example, our customers, uh, as I mentioned, you know, with Shopify, we have a lot of retailers, we have a lot of direct-to-consumer, you know, web-first e-commerce, and holiday season is really big for them. So, for us to really understand how we can help them in the holiday season, whether we're doing, you know, a campaign that's, you know, more focused on helping them get ready for the holiday season, whether we're doing a campaign focused on product adoption and how to leverage Shopify better to execute on all of their um, different initiatives for the holiday season. Um, A really big piece that we try and dig into is really understanding their world during the lead up to the holidays, right? Because there is this surrounding context that actually changes for our customers as they get ready for something like BFCM. Black Friday, Cyber Monday, right? Um, It is a huge event for a big chunk of our customers leading up to it. And in fact, like six months leading up to it. So we're not just talking about, you know, the actual holiday. You know, we have customers that start prepping for this almost a year in advance, right? And in the months leading up for it, it's incredibly important for us to understand like what their world is so that number one, whatever we put out there for them is actually helpful, is not distracting for them and actually will help them be successful. So um, that's, I think, probably one of the biggest pieces.
0: Yeah, move them towards their goal. Great. Mm What would be your next point?
1: Well, I mean, again, this is going to be a, oh, yeah, yeah, we know this, but most (laughs) companies, most teams I talk to don't actually, like, use this as a guiding light. And that's really to understand what it is that you're optimizing for. Most teams, and I'm not exaggerating, most marketing teams, and I've, you know, worked with a lot of teams, consulted with a lot of teams, don't actually know what they're optimizing for, or they do, but in execution, it doesn't actually play out. And sometimes this is actually a result of, you know, expectations on what marketing should do versus where marketing can actually have the most impact. I'm sure every marketer has heard this at some point is, you know... Give me more. Right. Uh, We need to generate more traffic. We need to generate more leads. We need to generate more, 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 more. Right. Mm -hmm. But that's often not actually the right question. The right question is, how do we actually get to the desired outcome with the least amount of leads? possible, right? How do we get to the desired outcome with the least amount of traffic possible? Because that speaks to quality and that speaks to conversion. And, you know, looking at it through that lens actually really changes how you might execute on a thing. So really understanding what it is that you're optimizing for and actually Using that to map out the execution, what it is you're going to do is, again, probably one of the things that sounds table stakes, but most teams don't look at it from that lens. They just think, okay, how do I drive more traffic? How do I drive more leads? When there are often things that they can do that are more impactful, that will actually hit the desired result, which might be revenue, which might be new customers. But again, the piece is like if you don't know what the desired result is, (laughs) it's hard to really have anything to guide you.
0: Well, again, no disagreement for me on this point. And, you know, often go into clients and see these situations where there's a mindset of it's all about the volume and not about have I found the right Mm -hmm. audience? Am I communicating the right message to that audience in such a way that they're understanding it? And are they taking the desired outcomes or the desired actions which lead to my outcomes? Rather have much fewer that actually do the things I want than a whole bunch of people that don't. So but it's a hard message to deliver. And so my -hmm. question to you is, what are some of the strategies that you found work really well to shift people towards, you know, it's a longer road to do it right. And, you know, we're not, I can't guarantee that we're going to get it right the first time either because it's a process. But but what I do know is that if you're optimizing or you're focusing just on volume, that's never going to get you to where you want to go.
1: Yeah, I mean I think it's it's a general mindset, right? So like the the number one rule I would have is like really understanding what you're optimizing for and then also taking that next step to figure out how to execute on it is like no puking rainbows is a thing that I say a lot. Um, we can we can call it a bonus one <laughs> if we want. Yeah. Um, but here's what I mean by that, and here's how most marketing teams operate. Whether we're talking about and listen, I have I've done all these things, so <laughs> this is not well, at all what, judgment. This is like observations over why, It's why I want
0: to ask you is because I'm sure you've been on both sides of this, and it's it's a tough of question. Course. Right?
1: It, yeah, it's, it's an incredibly tough question. And, you know, if you're not really disciplined about understanding what it is that you're trying to do, you end up puking rainbows. So, so here's what I mean by that is like, you end up in a lot of sort of, talking in circles, brainstorming sessions, you know, and it usually starts with something dropping into your calendar called brainstorm session, right? Right there, that's a huge red flag to me anytime I see brainstorm session in my calendar. Because what ends up happening, whether the goal is to try and come up with positioning, whether we're trying to brainstorm content, a campaign, whatever the thing might be, is it's a bunch of marketers walking into a room with a whiteboard, has to be a whiteboard. And basically, one of them starts talking in all of these sort of global, flowy adjectives and really pretty terms like unicorns and ice creams and rainbows. And then pretty sure pretty soon the marketer next to her also starts sort of puking rainbows and then it becomes infectious. And then everybody in the company is talking about unicorns and ice creams and rainbows. And then the problem is you end up coming up with this, you know, campaign or this positioning statement or this content or whatever the thing is that you're trying to do. That's not actually rooted in anything substantial right? You don't have the right inputs to inform this. It's just a bunch of marketers in a room talking about unicorns and ice creams and rainbows. And like, it's actually super scary how much that happens. And if you talk to anybody on my team, they will sort of acknowledge that I'm a broken record about that. Focus on the outcome and not the output, right? Um, mm-hmm. Which is what too many marketing teams do. And then you get into this problem where, you know, you don't know what you're optimizing for. You don't actually know what the desired result is. You end up in a lot of activity, puking rainbows, um, yeah. and the outcome actually suffers because of it. Because there isn't a disciplined and laser focus on understanding what it is that you're trying to do.
0: Well, on, on that uh, kind of joyful image of puking rainbows, I think we'll <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate, appreciate the bonus one too, Hannah. I just want to say thanks so much for, for your time. That was really great. I appreciate your insights and want to ask you if, if uh, our listeners want to reach out and get in touch with you, what would be the best way to do so?
1: You can probably find me on Twitter. I'm generally pretty responsive. Um, you can also uh, just head over to Um You can contact me through there. LinkedIn also works sometimes. <laughs> so yeah. feel free to take your pick. I'm pretty easy to find online.
0: Fantastic. Thanks so much to our listeners. Uh, if you want to catch any of our back catalog, it's now available, I'm very happy to say, Spotify, as well as Google Play, Music, SoundCloud, YouTube, iTunes, and Stitcher. And if you enjoy the podcast, I encourage you to leave comments, write a review, follow us, and share it out to friends. And as always, we appreciate your suggestions. You can reach me on Twitter at Alangshire. I look forward to having you join us for our next podcast when we'll get the opportunity to ask our guests about the top five things that they wish they'd known.